Thank you for joining the Relief from Grief podcast by Mrs. Miriam Ribiat and Hevra Lomde Mishnah. Our goal is to help you find the chizik you may need and the comfort of knowing that you are not alone. To sponsor an episode, visit hevralomdeimishnah.org forward slash podcast and bring comfort to listeners like you. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me here today in the Relief from Grief podcast. Today... On this podcast is Mr. Glenn Holman, who is a licensed clinical social worker, and he is the founder of Miriam, which is an organization that supports entire families that go through loss. And unfortunately, he has his own experience of child loss. So, Mr. Holman, thank you so much for coming on. And I guess you could share with us your story a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. This is like a great opportunity for me. You know, I always appreciate when I have the opportunity to talk about grief, to talk about loss, because it's something that's so, it's mysterious. It's, it can be ambiguous at times. It can be scary. And I think it's something that affects, at some point in our lives, everyone's life, they will be affected by some grief or some kind of loss. And loss isn't right, you know, isn't only designated for, for death. However, for tonight, that's our topic. Miriam is that is ex- exclusive to support families who have suffered child loss. And our goal is really to help the entire family unit. That includes the, the children, the siblings, and also the parents. And we, we, we provide some of our events are exclusive to, let's say, to moms or to dads or to teen girls. The goal is, if some the entire family, the goal is to really help them to mourn. So I'll give you a little bit of background of my story. It's not one that's so private these days. Yeah, I've spoken a few different on a few different occasions, and there's multiple you know, publications about it. So I could start out back in 1998. 1998 was a day that I will never forget. I suppose we took my daughter to the doctor for a routine checkup, and he had noticed some something concerning to him. And we how old was she? She was five. Yeah, Nechama was five. And we took Nechama Liba to, to a specialist, and he said, your daughter is very, very sick. Uh-huh. And that was a turning point in our lives. I could say, you know, everyone has those moments in life where their lives just get turned upside down or change directions. Hopefully, it'll be something good. But this was like kind of a turning point for us. So we spent the next six years about really caring for her. Her medical care was very complex. It was a very intricate and it, we had a lot of responsibility that was put on us to really care for her, both for medical treatments and for her medicines and, and, and so on and so forth. And it was a very difficult. One second. Can I interrupt then? If I'm too yeah. personal, you'll tell me. Yeah. She was so seriously ill, but you had no idea. Yeah. Wow. Okay. We had no idea. No clue. It was just, uh, and you know, yeah, it, it was one of the, that's what was such a shock. He's like, I remember the doctor, it was a member of the doctor. She said, your daughter is very, very sick. And she drew a, a diagram. Like I was back in elementary school, <laughs> biology, and I, we, we couldn't believe it. Right? Was really, this your oldest? Yeah. My oldest at the time. Yeah. Yeah. My oldest daughter. And uh, yeah, she was very sick. We had no clue. We were totally clueless. It was just something. And Likely, if it hadn't been for this doctor who who noticed something that was sort of subtle, actually, I don't know how long it would have taken to diagnose her. So 
so we, you know, so yeah, it was really complex. And so that's, you know, that's scary, right? And we took the next six years about, and, you know, we're responsible for her care. We, we spend you know, a lot of time in and out of, of the hospital. It was like, a, you know, constantly home in the hospital and back and forth. And in 2004, she passed away. And we realized at the time, it was really just in a few months, we realized there really wasn't anything out there to support the families, right? We looked at our own family and we said, you know, there, there needs to be something else that needs to be something there that's going to support the siblings, the parents, the family unit, because this is something that requires, just like you have, you know, links and, and beautiful organizations, some kind of beautiful organizations that are devoted to a particular group. We wanted to make a group specifically families that, that lost a child. And we spent, you know, so we started out with this annual retreat, you know, a brevent retreat. Actually, we have one coming up. This is, this has been doing it since about 2005. So th- we're doing now, there's about 60 plus families that come and it's around with, cause they come with all the siblings and staff. It's about 400 people. Oh, so wow. It's very, yeah. It's a really big deal. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of fun. There's a lot of therapeutic parts to it, a lot of components to it. We've really, it really has developed into a, a full a full program, which is special. And we were doing that for a number of years. And my daughter, Miriam, she was my third child. My daughter, Miriam, she was really instrumental. She became very involved, right? As she got older, she really became very involved and started to really almost run run it together. She was like my partner, right? We were running this together, these retreats. And it, you could, you know, if you if you ever speak to the people who are part of Mayrim, they'll they'll who remember her. They'll talk about remembering how she just led the show. They she she made all the phone calls and she she made arrangements and she, it was she was really an integral part. Like a very I remember part. reading about it in the Ami, maybe. Yeah, yeah, in the uh, Mishpacha, right? Mishpacha, Mishpacha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was pretty amazing. So, and then we got a shock. I remember um, in 2015. You know, I was already a therapist. You know. And working with grief, ironically, uh, all different types of grief, not just child loss. But I, I work with, you know, widows and, you know, uh, siblings, and children, all, all different types of losses I, I deal with in my practice, although I work lo- largely with adults. And 2015, we get this call from Miriam and she says, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling well. I have, I have something wrong. I went to the hospital. And it turns out that she was also sick. And we weren't, that was something unexpected. We were not expecting, you know, that another child would be sick. And, you know, this started, you know, another journey for us. And she was sick for about, I think it was three years, just about three years that she was sick. And towards, you know, while she was sick, she was very active, though. Well, it was, a very, it was different for her because she was really active. She was, you know, she had like, she was really, you asked about how Nakamo, we didn't realize. When Miriam was sick, she had two jobs. And she went to school <laughs> and she was helping with, with the retreats and all those type of things. It was, she was, but she couldn't walk down the block, you know, she without getting winded. So really, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, they call oh. it like a hidden, like almost like a hidden disease. People don't realize, you know, it's, it's, they don't, you don't realize how sick they are. And so how she, old was she when she found, when she got sick? She was eight, she was 18. Yeah. She was in seminary. That's what happened. She was in seminary in Israel. And she called us, she called up and she's like, I'm not doing well. And I remember it was during Sukkot. It was like in the middle of Sukkot. And I was like, we didn't realize it was anything so significant. 
but I decided anyways to go be with her because, you know, she's in the hospital. And then, you know, and then we got that, that, you know, that same confirmation that she was, she was sick. So she had been working in Mayrim, you know, with Mayrim. It wasn't called Mayrim, obviously, then. We didn't really have a name. We were just, you know, we did these retreats. We had a couple of events here and there. And the summer of 2017, if my dates are right, she decided, she said to me, you know, we got to do something more. We can't just have a once a year retreat. We need to do something every, we need to have monthly events. We need to have, you know, regional, more regional events. We need to, we need to really turn this into something bigger. Uh, summer came and went, right? We were, we were in talks about it. And then, and then her condition in the summer took a, a, very rapid. Okay, wait, one second. I have to interrupt again. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. You Anytime you have a question, you can ask. I don't ever know where. Finding out that another child has the same sickness, like it must have been so traumatic. How did you even get past the trauma to take care of her? I feel like I would just freeze. I would be like, help, and just stuck. <laughs> like I would have yeah. moved for days. Yeah. 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 So finding out about it was clearly very dramatic. It was very difficult. I remember that moment. You know, I remember that the resident came in. We were in Eretz Israel. The resident said, hey, this is what she's got. And I just said to him, I said, hey, you know what? I got it. And, you know, I just need some time by my, you know, time to myself. And he started, he was continuing to explain to me, not realizing, I said, I have a deep knowledge of this condition and I know quite a bit. And for right now, I don't need any extra information. I just need, and then, you know, so it was very difficult, right? At the same time for us, you know, part of what we, we knew we needed to do, we kind of went into, you know, survival mode, right? We need to make sure we need to do whatever we can to help her to live, to help her to have a quality of life and a quantity of life. So we, Was we there any there. hope for her even to live or it was like basically like... You know, I think people with that condition, largely a lung transplant, which she did in, in fact receive. She did get a lung transplant at the end, uh, which was also an, another, you know, big component of, of wow. her life. So w- without that, there's, you know, there are some interventions. There was, there's a lot more promise and hope than there was. It's not... You know, it's not it's not the type of diagnosis that you want to get, right? It's not the diagnosis that it's it's not a hopeful feeling diagnosis. You know, right. I tend to be hopeful. I tend to be a hopeful person. So we were, we were just we just went into like, okay, here, what do we need to do? Let's you know, we hung on to hope, and we you know went into the mode of doing whatever we could to support her, right? And did she ever yeah. talk about dying? Talk about dying. Nechama definitely, we didn't talk about it with her. I don't know if we had, I don't think I ever had a heart to heart about death. I don't think she, I mean, you know, even Nechama knew. She, I mean, Miriam definitely knew. She was a very bright girl and she was very clear. As a matter of fact, one of the interesting stories about Nechama was that she also knew she was going to die. Nechama was 10 when she passed and almost 11. And she was, very clear that we didn't realize actually we didn't know it's an, it's, a, it's an interesting story that she was a part of camp Simcha. she was in high life once camp and she was very you know she went she came back from camp the last the second to last time she was there and she was a very happy child even despite her sickness i remember she was at camp and and someone pointed out and said see that kid over there that girl with the clown nose and the clown hat and she's laughing and giggling says that's the sickest kid in camp wow so that's a story that was repeated to me. So she came back and she was very happy, very inspired. And, you know, I didn't quite understand what had transpired. 
and I knew she was, like I said, she was generally a very smiley, happy child, even despite, you know, in and out of hospitals. I mean, her life was a very difficult uh, life. She had a permanent Broviac, she had a machine connected to her all the time. It was a very difficult time. So I kind of asked the camp, what happened in camp? She came back like with a renewed energy. And I didn't know uh, what had transpired. And the person who was there wouldn't tell me. He says, I promised I wouldn't tell. So I didn't know what happened. So when she passed away, which was about a year later, right, just about a year later. Now, during Shiva, I walked outside. I just actually, I just came back from Eretz Israel because that's where my daughters are buried. So I just came back. This is in, in 2004. And I like, arrived in Eretz Israel. I davened and I went over the phone and I told this rabbi, okay, what happened? <laughs> Literally during Shiva, I needed to know. And he said something interesting. He said that Nechama had told him that she said, you guys don't know. You thought you were pr- protecting her, but she was protecting you. You think she didn't know she was going to, you were like, didn't want to say the word die. You don't want to say the word death. She knew. She knew she was going to live a short life. She knew she had a, a, an illness that she was going to die from. Yeah, and she was protecting you by giving you the impression that she didn't know. And I asked, okay, so what was the, you know, what was this renewed? He said, it's, it's funny to me. I say this story because she was 10, right? So I'm only saying it, you know, because this was what I was told. He said, he said he had shared what they had discussed. This rabbi had discussed the idea of her being like an inspiration to people to live with an illness, Besimcha. And that was, and she felt like very motivated and inspired by that concept that she could sort of help the world, you know, people who are suffering, people who are in, you know, especially if illness, and to teach them, you can, you can, you can go through life with Simcha, regardless of the challenges. And he said, she hooked onto that. And she was, you know, wow. that was really what had invigorated her. Oh my um, gosh. That is special. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So she was, she died three days before her 11th birthday. So she was, a, she was a young girl. It was, you know, it's really interesting. You know, there's a lot of stories and you can read them online. A lot of stories about Nechama while she was alive, you know, really inspiring stories. You know, she, there was a Rav in the neighborhood who was sick. We knew we were close to him. So she wrote him a letter. She wrote this Rav a letter uh, to talk about how to live to, just like that. Like a, he's a Rav, like a real, <laughs> and she's 10 year old girl. She wrote him a letter and it's, it was printed somewhere in the uh, Olamenu or something. It was printed this letter about how to live with an illness, Besimcha. Wow. And the story goes, I haven't told the story in a long time. The story goes, we went, this rabbi had never met her. I mean, he was, you know, he's a rabbi. No. And she, she went over to his house. We dropped off the letter. I remember it to, to, I remember it to this moment. And so we'd never heard the follow-up. So we didn't think, you know, he had, he had done anything, whatever. So I, after that rabbi had passed away, his kabrusa said to me, I said, did you ever, I asked him, did you ever see that letter? And he goes, of course, the one from the, from Nechama, he said, yeah, the Rav was very sick at the end of his life, and he used to keep the letter on his desk. And this guy told me that whenever the Rav, because he was so frail, he couldn't learn, he would look over to the letter, and he would like put his, I don't know, put his hand on it, or he would look at it, and then he would be like, okay, well, let's go. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was a wild story, right? Wow, that is very wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, you know, Nechama was like that. So w- the reason that's so significant is that Nechama was Miriam's like that's who Nechama, that's who Miriam like models her life her life after right so when when Miriam got sick she she looked at and, and people who knew Miriam understood this she looked to Nechama like that's the person 
who's going to, well, who's going to inspire me. I'm going to live the rest of my life to be like Nechama. And it was, and that was her role model. So this wow. um, wow. was ironically. So she threw her, you know, Miriam had thrown herself into the organization at the time, right? To, especially the retreats was the big thing we did. And she threw herself into that, you know, and, and there were times when it was unimaginable difficulty, you know, from a physical perspective and, you know, incredible difficulty. And she did not stop. She did not stop. It was really remarkable. So, so that's why it was so interesting. So at the, she knew what it was like to be a sibling to, who lost a sibling. So she was, she was like committed to that cause. She experienced it. So it was really, you know, she, so here's the summer where started making plans. Okay. And we didn't have a name. Little did we know. And we're like, okay, let's do, we're gonna start doing this and do it this way. And that, you know, and this is how we're going to set it up. And then summer passes and she gets really, really ill. And, you know, she's, she lives for another few months and hospitalized. It's a lung transplant. And, you know, and then she, she passed away ultimately. So we knew right away. It was like, she passed away. What are we going to do? We knew, you know, this is going to be her legacy because, you know, we just, we knew that we knew it had to be a name that was connected to her. So Mayrim is like Mayrim to lift up. I guess so that's lifting people up. That's, that's Mayrim. So we knew exactly what we had to, what, what she would have wanted us to do. It wasn't like we had to give her any thought to it, you know? So interestingly enough, just another interesting point. So my mother-in-law had bought, we had, when Nechama passed, we had bought two plots, one in my, for my wife and myself next to Nechama and my, in, in Eretz Israel, and my mother-in-law had bought, bought a plot right, right there as well, right in front of us. And when Miriam passed, we asked her, you know, could we use that spot? And she said, yeah, which was, a, it's a, you know, well, again, it was a tremendous mysterious nefesh because of the, the way that it works in Eretz Israel. You know, tremendous mysterious nefesh. And, uh, you know, so Miriam and Nechama really are right, one one right in front of the other. Wow. Wow. Uh, you ever see, if you send you a picture and you'll see it. They, you know, you get a picture, you see both. They're, they're diagonal, the ones like a little offset. So you could see, you know, if you're standing here, you could see both the names. Wow. Yeah. So how often do you go? You go to the cemetery like at least once a year? Different years. Yeah. I, I try to, you know, I try to think historically, you know, once a year, you know, one, sometimes I'm able to go twice a year, Yeah, you know, but not often. I mean, some years I don't go at all. So it, it averages out probably right. once a year. I like to go, you know, it's, it's a meaningful experience for me. And now we have, so as far as Mayrim, we have a, now a branch in Israel. So really, uh, with, yeah, we have four branches. We have one in Brooklyn, five towns. That's the one branch. We have one in Lakewood, one in Muncie Monroe, and then in Israel is kind of one branch. Wow. Wow. And that was actually something that Miriam and I had discussed because one of the challenges we had when we started this was getting, you know, getting someone from Lake, you know, getting everybody to go into one place. You could do that for a Shabbaton, but on a weekday to get everyone together. So we, so we had developed, which is fascinating to think now, like that, Something I discussed with her then is, is you know, as you know, is so, such an integral part of how we structured things. So if you have, you know, if you have moms in Lakewood or dads in Brooklyn, to have them all over the place, you know, running all over the place, it's just too much. So we right. did like re- we did it regionally based, and that's one of the things I think that's made it possible for people to to participate, you know, in the frequency that they Right. Right. So are your other children involved in in this organization? Some are. You know, I, I think when it comes to the Shabbaton, people are, you know, there's, there are other people involved, you know, wife's involved in, in various things and, and other kids take, you know, different roles within it. I don't know if anyone's yet 
taken, you know, nobody's taken Miriam's place where she was that active. So I'm, I'm fortunate to have some other people. Not a, it's a very small staff, but I have, you know, two other people who, or, or three other people who volunteer, who are, are very active. And then, you know, other times, so we have a few other people, but it's a really small staff and it's something everyone feels very close to, I think. So, you know, it's important. It's, we, everyone considers this a family, something that our family is doing, right? And and you know everyone has different roles and some more active than others. Right, right. Wow. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you a question that probably you never got before. So I don't know where this popped into my head, but okay, <laughs> like by Miriam's Leviah, how like as a father, how how did you get up and give a hespit for a second child? Oh, okay. That's an easy one. It's an easy one, yeah. Because I'll tell you why it's an easy one. So. I, you know, the Leviathan era to Israel was, was different, right? You know, that was a very, that was, you know, a, a much more dramatic experience for me, you know, the actual Kura. So we'll leave that, you know, aside for a moment and, you know, that'll be for the books. But I, so one of the things I talked about at the, I talked about this at the Leviathan. And what I said was, if you knew Miriam, as a child, she was that kid who never gave problems. She was like the one, like everyone has, you know, everyone should have every kid doesn't get <laughs> But she was the one, you, you never, not a single thing. She always listened. She always did exactly what was expected of her. She was, you know, she was that child, right? And I talked about the idea that when she got sick, she became a, a new person and she became fearless. And she made this bucket list of things she was going to do, like holding a, just this picture of her holding like a snake or an alligator or something like, <laughs> she's like, and she was not that type. She was, she was a girl whose life was seemingly programmed that she was going to, you know, go through school and, and you know, go to Besiakov and go to seminary and come back and marry a color guy. And she, and her life got turned upside down. And her response to that was to become fearless. And, you know, she went, even, the, you know, a few months before she passed away, it may, you know, she went, she went indoor skydiving. I mean, which I was not a fan of. She went to her, I said, if the doctor's, if the doctor okay, is it, you can, but I don't, you know, I didn't like the idea. Doctor said, fine. She did some traveling. She once traveled by herself to Eretz Israel just to get brachos. It was it was unbelievable. Wow. She became fearless. So as I stood there and I said, I feel like I'm standing here and I feel like I don't know how I'm going to do this. I said, but Miriam would never have tolerated. If she was here, she never would have tolerated me to say, I can't do this. Right. So she was, so I was inspired by her I mean, a few weeks probably before she was hospitalized. So we had a, a yard site for Nechama. I speak at every yard site. And I said, you know, this year I'm not going to speak. I'm just, I just didn't have it. I right? didn't have it in me. <laughs> and she had a wedding for one of her closest friends had a wedding that night. Right. And we, whatever, we could have went, we, we chose not to go afterwards. That was, you know, was the yard, you know, was the yard site. So but Miriam was so close to this girl. She, she said, she's going to go. So Miriam goes there and she says, I'm coming back from the wedding in the middle of the wedding to hear you speak because the wedding was, it was a local wedding. And um, she said, I'm going to come back for the yard side Suda and you were going to speak. She tells me, and I'm going to listen. So she comes back in her gown. One of the, you know, the famous pictures we have of her, you know, that's probably in the Shabbat or whatever. It's her in this long gown and it was on the yard side. So she comes back and she's like, you're going to speak, ta, and, wow. <laughs> and I'm going to listen. And yeah, that was, you know, it's obviously a, a horrific experience to go through. And I just remember that was my kind of the only thing that that gave me the sort of the strength to do it was just thinking to myself. And I, I spoke 
in the Hesped, I was like, Miriam would never have tolerated me to say, you know, I, I can't do it. I'm going to say a few words. So I'm not going to speak. She said, that wasn't Miriam. She didn't, she didn't go for that. So that's, that's how I did it. Wow. So what about like after Shiva, let's say, I'm not even talking about Shiva because it's like such a bubble, but after Shiva getting up and going back to life, that, that was kind of your mantra also. Miriam wouldn't let me say I can't. So I'm just going to yeah. get through my day. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, mean, I wouldn't say, you know, and I, I want to be careful about this because I think, that, you know, when you get into that, there's, there's a million paths, right? So that, so I could tell you there's so many paths to that. For me, that was one of the things that was really a driving force, just knowing that, that her sort of mantra was, you know, got to keep going. You got to keep going. And I think that period of time is something, you know, the period of time after Shiva, right? You know, I'm talking more specifically in the scenario of of child loss, even though it applies to lots of losses, but that's, I work, you know, my practice and and with the organization, you know, it's it's so horrible (laughs) what people have to, you know, the experience, you know, the emptiness that people will often feel. You know, I I was just by Shiva House recently and, and someone asked me, you know, what do we say during Shiva? I said, that's not when, that's, you know, there's a lot of stuff, some more, you know, all well-meaning, some more helpful than others, but there's a lot of support during Shiva. It's when you, you have to do that walk around the block, right? And then you're, you walk back in the house and it's, it's empty. And that's when things, I think, get a little more difficult. It's really then. And I said, you know, I went to this Shiva. I didn't even talk to the people. I, I mean, I said one or two words because I was just trying to help them with something with but I, I didn't really talk. I said, everybody's here. They got, I got everyone here. It's, right. it's, it's two months, three months, six months, a year later, and, or, or even 10 years later. Right. right. When people are, you know, people aren't, you know, the support kind of isn't, isn't necessarily there. So how do you differentiate between like being the founder of this organization and helping people, but not giving away your parents? I'm not sure I understand the question. Oh, no, what I'm saying is, is that what you do is you counsel people, right? That's yeah. your panacea. You, yeah. But as the founder of the organization, it's like you're, you're helping people all day long. Like you're doing for free what you really do for a living. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are parts of it that that are, you know, there are other parts of it, right? There's, there's the, the logistical administrative part of it of just, you know, scheduling and creating organizations and calling magicians and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> speaking to caterers and all kinds of stuff like that. Right. Yeah. But it's, it does, you know, it keeps me very busy. I would say we tried to schedule this, I think, for a bit. I'm really busy. I'm thankful for the opportunity to help people. There's so many people who need it. And because I have an experience, you know, my personal experience, my professional experience, you know, I, I feel, uh, I, I would say, I wouldn't say a sense of obligation. I would say a sense of, if I get a sense of uh, a fulfillment, certainly from being able to, to help people. And that's really, you know, I think it's something important. To, that the world needs. And we were talking before we actually started this podcast about people that lost more than one child. And you were telling me how you were sitting around with, you know, a few other couples. Is this like something that's really becoming like, like just so less common than what it used to be? It's like so scary to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not a statistician. And I couldn't tell you if it's happened more than, than other. The one thing that is happening more often is, you know, suicides or overdose. You know, there are components of that, especially in the overdose. That's is becoming is more prevalent than it once was. And that's scary. And, you know, you can speak to, you know, Amudib and Zigluck and people who have more 
knowledge of what's going on there, you know, and and I don't want to speak to that because that's not my necessarily my areas of my area of expertise. But we are seeing a lot more of that. We didn't have as many families connected to organization as we do today, and within that sort of group, really. So that's definitely concerning for the community. I don't know that there's more cancer or more illness or more. I think what happens is that as a community, the Jewish community has evolved. And I'll give an example. When uh, we started this, we used to send out mailings. We used to call people when had the Shabbaton. So we, there was a lot of outreach. Now, like this year, when I posted you know, registration for the upcoming retreat, I mean, we were a half full in the morning. So it was overnight. We got you know, 30 families plus signed up overnight. Wow. Yeah, wow. 12 hours. So I think I, I attribute that to just more awareness. Right? I think the awareness has increased. Certainly the awareness of our organization has is, is increased. And I think awareness that this is a reality. I think what there is a change in terms of something that people are more open to speak about, right? Especially, unfortunately, people who are babies. I think, you know, those type of things. I think there's more awareness about the need to, you know, uh, look for support or ask for support. Right. I think, you know, the, as mental health has changed significantly in the Jewish community over the last number of years. So this has, you know, aw- this awareness is also changed. So I don't know if there's, if things are worse than they were before that you'd have to speak to rabbinums, politicians, statisticians. <laughs> I can't tell you that. I think what you do see is that it is scary to recognize the frailty of life. Right? right. To recognize how little control we have in the world. So I think that is something the the byproduct of that is that commonly, this is something you speak all the time, people feel an intense pressure to move on. So we tolerated you to be in a period of grief like for this long. We were even, you know, the the, the outside world is saying, I think there's a message that says, like, you know, we were really nice. We gave you even a couple of extra weeks. But right. it's, it's it's time, right? right. <laughs> and and some of that is comes from people, you know, I think from not the, the mourners, but from the, the observers, people who are observing them, who, who sometimes it's it's hard, right? It's hard. There's a very helpless feeling sometimes still to see someone who's experienced, you know, tragic loss and to feel like, you know, we can't control the world around us. And I think that can lead sometimes to inadvertently pressure to that is felt by the, the mourner that, you know, we got to move on. And that's something that's we talk about a lot. So what advice could you give to those people, to the friends of the people that went through loss that are watching their friends go through this and they're so helpless? Yeah. Like- yeah. Very common question. So I'll tell you, I, you know, I had this question recently. I'm just going to give you my Shiva system and then we'll move from there. So I tell people when they go to Shiva, because I get this question a lot, what's the most helpful way? So my system, it's a point system. It's, it's not complex. Whenever you go into Shiva, you start with 100 points. You walk in the door, as a, if you're Menachem Avel, you start with 100 points. Everything you say, you lose points. If you say something really like, you know, and, and we hear it all the time, and I'm not going to get, you know, go down that path, but the most ludicrous, you know, sometimes hurtful things that people say, you know, you lose a lot of points, right? Imagine you say some of the crazy things that, that we hear, you know, you lose 50 points. And if you say something smart, you know, you lose three points. Right. So you come out with a 97. It's a great average. Right. My kid comes, a, comes home with a test, a 97. And we're very, you know, that's a great score. Right. I think, you know, the exception to that would be if you know the person who passed away, then I think that's the exception to share stories or 
to share something about, you know, uh, anecdote or, or something you learned from them or something that makes you remember them. I think that's something that can, could have, you know, a really, you know, I say a positive effect, right? A meaningful effect. But outside of that, I think, especially when you're talking, you know, as I said, I'm, you know, I'm talking about child loss to a degree, you know, that in that circumstance, I think, you know, the less, less is more. I think as you move out of that, one thing is, you know, I've heard this before. I've heard some people say, and it's, it's tricky, right? You'll say, you know, don't say if there's anything you need. Right? Don't say that. I've heard that a lot of times. Yeah. I, I get that, right? There's also, I think sometimes there's too much of these, like this specific, <laughs> you know, being very specific. Like, it's okay, you know, if there's anything you need to say that. I think it could be even better is, some, you know, to give them a specific to try to identify a specific need and offer that. We had somebody, I remember before, while Miriam was sick, this person did carpal for us every week. Really amazing. Every week, we, we, Miriam had been hospitalized for about four and a half months. It was a very time, very difficult time. And this person said, I just want you to know, you do not have carpal until, you know, you don't worry about carpal. And they took care of a certain carpal. So after they pa- after Miriam passed, I think the person, we said, okay, we're ready. They said, listen, I took your carpal you're not worrying about carpal. I don't think we let them do it for the rest of the year, or they though they offered. But that was a very specific thing that really went it went really far. That was something wow, so nice. helpful to us. Or it could be something like, "Can I take one of the kids out? Can I bring dinner?" I remember people were always bringing dinners to us during this period of time. So I think you know when when someone, Baruch Hashem, someone has a baby, dinners, dinners, dinners. You know, says so illness, dinners, dinners, dinners. When someone's two weeks after shiva, it's like okay. Time to get time to get back to business. Right. right. I think if someone says you probably don't even need it, you could say something like that. <laughs> or I don't even know if it's necessary, but I, I want to take upon myself. Can I just bring you dinner for just for a couple of weeks? I just want to Tuesday night so you don't worry about dinner. Just Tuesday night, even if you want to cook something or or pizza night, I'm just letting you know there'll be two pies of pizza at your house every Tuesday night and you're not going to worry about it. I don't want to hear another word about it. Right. Don't try to talk me out of it. Something like that is is just a very specific and very, you know, if you can identify a need. I'm going to be shopping from that for the next X, Y, and Z, or just to call them. I think sometimes what happens is there's a, people really want to help. So they be <laughs> too forthcoming and <laughs> call and call 17 times. You know, I'm at the supermarket, they call in the morning. I'm still here. You need anything? I don't think right. you have to do that. I think, you know, I think the idea is to identify a need, make the offer, and then hopefully that's helpful. The other two pieces of guidance that I believe would be helpful is one, you know, go with their flow. Right. Don't, you know, if you see, and this is true even of parents, right, who have siblings who are mourning or, or any grievers, I think the idea is we don't want to, you know, you don't have to push them in a certain direction. You have to push them to talk and push them not to talk. Just feel them out and just try to go with their flow. The one thing I think that is helpful is anecdotes, stories. I think everybody appreciates that, or largely that's something that's, you know, that people appreciate is just. Oh, I was thinking, reminding me of this story, so and so, or I saw this picture and it reminded me of, you know, so and so, or whatever, whatever you can say. I think those type of things are helpful. I, I you know, if they, I remember there was a child when I was a teenager, there was a family I was close to, and there was a child who passed away. And that child, if sometime before he passed, had drawn a portrait, you know, art, artist. And I remember I had, you know, I called the parents, I said, have this picture your son drew. And, I, and it meant something to me. Right. I want wow. <laughs> it meant something to me. And you know, but I called him and said, you know, would you like that? And said, right. yeah. yeah. Or have a picture and any of those type of things. Anything that keeps you know, that 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 person alive, so to speak, 
in, in this world. Th- those things are helpful. So after my brother was Nifter, my father had an experience with a friend that, and he was well-meaning, but my father was so hurt. He's like, I'm sorry, but I don't know if I could call him a friend anymore. I, I don't remember exactly the story, but there was a wedding or something. And my father said, look, I just, I can't go. I'm not up to it. Maybe it was a few months afterwards. And the friend felt ready, like, okay, come on. It's a few months, time to move on. Yeah. And he he like really forced my father. He came, he picked him up. He, he this, he that, he like really... And he probably thought he was like being such a good friend by getting him out, but like it was really, really hurtful. So I guess the question is really like sometimes there's just like just knowing you you just can't do. There is nothing to do, and don't try to do it because it could be very hurtful. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's great, really great guidance. I think it goes. It speaks to the idea. When I say shiva, people I say, you know, you have this point system. And say, what do you mean? You know, I remember my wife always says this story. I think it's such a great story. She remembers that someone had a law, and this person came in, sat down, and kind of like walked to the center of the of the shiva and sat down and said, "Okay, I have three things. Number one, and whatever they were, and I kept imagining the way I describe it. And if number one doesn't work, number two. And if number two doesn't work, the number three for sure is going to work. It, it goes back to that idea. People are well-meaning to trying to fix something that is inherently not going to you know, be fixed right. in a way that we, that we want to normally fix things. And that's very difficult, as we described earlier, that people who, who say something that's not fixable, right? This is a tragedy, and it's something not fixable. And we, as human beings, all struggle with that. Right? It's a constant struggle of, you know, we can't fix it. That's that's rough, right? That's that's a difficult circumstance. I think the other part, which I think is matches what we discussed earlier, was go with the flow. If this person had called, I don't, it was great that this guy called up your dad. Hey, Shiva dinner or whatever it was, you know, you want to go? And if he said, you know, thanks for thinking of me, I'm just, just not going to make it. And imagine the person had responded with, of course not. I, you know, of course, I, I totally understand. If he was super, super, you know, validating, he would say, I, I don't know what I was thinking. Or right. he might say, you know, totally understood. Just let, you know, if you ever need a ride or anything, feel to reach out. If it's okay, uh, I would like to reach out. If there's something else in the future, is it okay if I reach out? And if, and if you know, if your dad had said, you know, all Shalom had said, no, I'd prefer if you didn't reach out to me. Then that's going with the flow, right? And he said, right. "You could try. I don't know if it'll be up. It'll be up to it then." This, sure, no pressure, right? And, and that, that, those are the type of friends that you need. And this is the go with the flow that we're talking about, right? Wow. I have another question. <laughs> Again, I think before we actually started this recording, you were telling me how you know you you carry your girls with you every day. You take them with you every day. I spoke to you a few times. This is my first time actually like meeting you. And I just seen you such a like upbeat, positive person. So where is that pain? It's, okay. This is a great, it's great. Great question. So I think there's a few points. Yeah. In my heart, there's certainly a thing. And it's a topic, you're touching on a topic that's very close to me, which is the idea, this idea of being positive for the sake of being positive and, and, and thankful. It's, it's, it's actually not what drives me. I'm not bubbly, positive, just for the sake of being. I actually don't even see virtue in in you know that on its own. It's just not. I mean, just for me personally, 
you know, just to be happy. Like, is you know, one of the things that I talk about quite a bit, and that's why you touched on it was sometimes you'll see somebody who just seems so strong, you know, he's so strong. He's such a Muna. And I, I don't, that's not, I think there's a misconception there. There's a misconception that one person is strong because he's a certain way and another person is less strong. People who sit and feel their pain and, and go through life anyway, people who feel like I can't get up in the morning and they get out of bed, someone who feels like I can't go to the PTA and they, and they do it anyway. And I'm not judging if they don't. I'm okay with whatever works. So the one thing I will say is that my mantra is whatever works. People say, you think I should this? What works for you? It's like, you think I should, you know, go on a vacation or not go on a vacation or I should do this or do that? I say, does that work for you? No, then don't do that. If I say, does it work for you? Yes, then do that. Right? <laughs> Whatever works, right? This is about finding our own individual path. The misconception is that sometimes we look at somebody and say, oh, this moon is so strong and they're so strong. And I have an experience. I think everyone has their own coping mechanisms. Right, everyone has, and sometimes a person's coping mechanism for that person is to be strong. That's the way that they that they cope. And some people, you know, will look. And the reason that I this is close to me is because I've seen a lot of times people who are struggling, and they say, you know, oh look how look that person is doing is like doing so well, and I'm struggling. I think experiencing loss can often be a struggle. It, it, for many many people, it's a struggle when you lose someone who you love and you care about. And the rest of the world says, you know, you got to move on. So that's painful. When the person themselves look at this individual and they say, oh, he's so strong. She's so strong. So much Amuna. And they look at themselves and say, oh, I'm, you know, as if they, they look at themselves in a, a negative way. And they say, oh, I'm, I'm less than. You're not, in my opinion, anyway. You're not less than. That person has their way of coping. This person has their way of co- coping. And I don't think there's any the way I look at it anyway, stronger or better or weaker, it just because someone says, I feel the pain. I think, I think that when we, we, when we lose someone who we love, it's, it's hard and it could be a struggle a lot of times. So my life is more about meaning. I get, you know, I'm generally a hopeful person and I try to make meaning out of my life and I have, you know, the pain of, of the loss of my daughters is as real for me as it is for anybody else. And I have my way of, I think that uh, I will tell you a small Dura if if it's okay to say it on here. And sure. this is this is what it is. So there's, an, there's a concept that God doesn't give you tests that you can't handle. Right. You've, you've heard it, right? Of course. So I, I reject it. And I think that it can be, now that I reject it, I think that it could be, and I, I spoke to a rabbi about this. I said, in a certain way, that there's a kafira to it. If it's not understood in the right way, it's, it can, it's, it's, it deny, it's, 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 it's kafira. And the reason is because it suggests two things. It suggests that God, like, wants to give you more, but he can't. Like, he looked at you and said, this is, this is, oh, man, you're, you, I, I had so much more stars I wanted to give you, but I can't because you're limited. <laughs> The second problem is that it suggests that God, so besides being, that's kind of a cruel way to look at, 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 at Hashem. The second thing that makes it difficult is that it suggests that there are limitations to what God can do. So it says that you are a certain vessel and God has to abide by the limitations of the vessel. Okay. And that's what, 
So the way that I look at it, and you know, I spoke to this rabbi. He, I think he told me that there was one of the Tanayim said this. So I won't say who because I'll probably misquote it. But the concept was that God will give you the tools to handle whatever he gives you. So it starts with, here's something, and I wouldn't pretend in any way to suggest that I have any idea why these things happen, right? As we were saying earlier, this, there's no shortage of tragic experiences and difficulty in, in the Sionis. So I wouldn't pretend to, to suggest why God does what he does, right? He's infinite, and we are, we are limited in that way, and we don't know. At the same time, when God decides this person, I'm going to give this Sionis to a person, Therefore, I'm going to give you the exact tools that they need to be able to handle a situation. So it's not that God doesn't give you more than you can handle. He gives you to handle whatever Nisyanis is going to give you. Gives you the tools to be able to handle them. And And I'll just add to that, that the tools aren't right before us. We sometimes have to really dig deep to really find them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we got to (laughs) work. We're going to work for them, yeah. And, 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 And so if I look at you and I, you know, I hear your story and what you've experienced, and I say, oh, how did you do go through what you went through, right? And you're looking at me and say, how did you go through with what you went through? And God gave you tools that are uniquely suited to be able to handle whatever it is, the circumstances that you had. And God gave me the tools to handle, like you said, you got to dig deep sometimes, <laughs> but the tools are there, right? The tools are there. So the idea is that, you know, I don't know. I think God gives us the ability to just withstand and to, and to be able to make choices, right? He gives us the tools to be able to make the choice to be able to handle whatever it is. And there are days- But you sound like you are the type that never said like, why me? I stopped saying why me at some point because I recognized that for me, because that wasn't a, it wasn't something that I was ever going to get an answer to in this world. So for me, I took that, we put it on the shelf and, you know, after whatever is my time, after 120, hopefully, uh, you know, I will carry that question and it'll be a question that I will ask when I go to the next world. In this world, my questions are more about the what, but what do I need to do? And and so this just to follow up to that thing. The second part of the answer to that is there's this idea. So the, the story, and I've told the story a few times about this, a judge who had someone came to his court and the person was an ex-veteran and the person had done some kind of crime and it had happened multiple times. And the judge told him, I am sorry to have to do this, but you got to spend the night in jail. And I can't, there's no way around it. So you got sentenced and the person is in jail and there's a knock on the door and he opens it up and who's there? The judge. (laughs) The judge tells him, listen, I'm I'm an ex-veteran also. So I know how hard it is to come back from war and come into real life. And I recognize how difficult it can be. He says, but I'm also a judge and I can't, there's nothing I can do about it but I'm going to stay with you and I'm going to sit with you the entire night. And the judge stayed with him the whole night in the jail. And they talked and they shared stories and they, you know, he supported him. He says, all I could do is be here with you. I didn't have the option to say, go free again, but at least I could be with you. And I think that's the God that I believe in. I think that there's a God, the other God that says, you know, he wants to give you more, but he, he you know, he can like, that's, it's not the, that's not the way that I perceive God. And right. some days, and some days, we, you know, myself included, we all struggle with, with it's all, it's all great. This is, I think what, what you said was so, was the most important thing that you got to dig deep. It's an active process to try to find ways to cope and to manage and to live and survive. It's an active process. It's not something that just 
all of a sudden you either are this way or you're not this way. It's a constant struggle. Everybody struggles. Everybody works, myself included. We all work. We all do our best to try to get through the day and to try to make this world, you know, something that that is meaningful to us or whatever it is. So I, ho- I think, you know, Myra Bang always told me that what God looks for is not, you know, the person who just has natural talent. God looks for people who will, you know, God appreciates and values the efforts that we make. And the struggle is what he looks at. And and he recognizes Rahmanis on the struggle and values that the efforts that we make. And I think that people, especially ones who grieve and who have experienced all these type of Nisyanis, I hope that they can recognize that, you know, just to let themselves have their feelings, to to let themselves, if they can ha- get someone to call them, like, you have to go to the, you have to go to the Shiva dinner. It's like, no, I don't. I don't have to go to the Shiva dinner. I'm not up to it now. This is not where I'm at. Like, just give yourself permission to recognize that it's a process. And for some of us, it's a really hard process. Right. Right. Okay. So thank you so, so much. I'm afraid we're going to lose our listeners soon. So let's go back to that parody message that you... Okay. Okay. So the, the parting message is, number one, I guess I will tell people, give yourself a break. Don't be hard on yourself. Let yourself have your feelings. This isn't easy and celebrate whatever successes there are, whatever milestones you have, and forgive the times when you didn't achieve or reach what you were hoping that you would be able to achieve. And just forgive yourself for not being and at where where you wish you could be, where right. your family wants you to be, where everyone wants you to be. And just hold on to the the moments that that are meaningful. And I wish everybody Nechama and I hope Mashiach comes really soon so we can stop all this. Amazing. Thank you so, so much. (laughs) All right. Okay, we'll be in touch in a minute. You have just listened to an episode by Mrs. Miriam Ribiet. For more episodes or for additional information about future episodes, visit our website at www.chevralomdemishna.org or email mribiet at chevralomdemishna.org. To submit questions or comments for this speaker, to suggest another speaker who might be mechazek others, or to sponsor a podcast, visit chevralomdemishna.org forward slash podcast.